What's up, independent insurance agents? Are you finally fed up with the massive amounts of time, money, resources being allocated to customer service within your agency? Is this causing your agency growth and revenue to become stagnant or even decline? The answer to this frustration is Glovebox, the premier mobile and web self-servicing solution made by successful independent insurance agents just like us, specifically for independent insurance agencies. Guys, this is the only platform with direct carrier connections. Glovebox gives your clients the power to engage within their writing carriers and you, their agency, in a single, easy-to-use platform. Mention the Insurance Guys podcast and get 20% off of your monthly subscription for life, guys. For life. This isn't an intro deal. This is for life. Schedule your demo with Glovebox today. Thanks. Insurance agents from around the world, welcome to the Insurance Guys podcast. My name is Scott Howell, your fearless host and leader, insurance agency owner and insurance evangelist for I Protect Insurance and Financial Services, based out of Huntsville, Alabama. And before we get started on today's episode, please help me welcome, he is a six foot three sophomore from Sarah Land, Alabama, parade first team All-American rivals, five-star recruit. He is a fantastic insurance agent and a great American. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and welcome the incomparable Mr. Bradley Flowers. How are you, Bradley? Great, Scott. How are you today? Best I have ever been, Bradley. Just got through with the 2022 sales meeting to end all sales meeting with our salespeople here in the agency. We were throwing chairs around the conference table, tackling each other. It was fantastic. Would you Arm like wrestling. To, would you like to know our I'm, I'm going to speak in premium here. Would you like to know? I know it's going to piss a lot of in, independent agents off because I'm not talking in revenue. What do you think, Bradley Flowers, our premium goal is for the year of our Lord 2022? Four million. Close. Real close. We got a lot of work to get there, though, brother. A lot of work. Hire what is another, it? By the way, podcast listeners, hiring. Listen up, guys. If you're a rock star, five-tool player, Hiring another personal lines insurance agent for the Huntsville market. And we, we're like third, fourth fastest growing. I got a podcast crowd here listening to me today, Bradley. But we've got, um, oh, yeah, we've got one of the fastest growing cities in the United States. You think you could write some personal lines insurance in Huntsville, Alabama, Bradley? I'm about to piss you off, but I'm going to say if you don't want to work for Scott, call me. <laughs> wow i mean that's that's the kind of relationship we have guys i give 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 no, and bradley take take just, take no, hey bradley we never got, take one of scott's candidates hey guys we need to talk to you guys about something today very very important january 20th and the 21st bradley flowers myself and the only in my opinion mobile app in the independent insurance space glove box we're holding the insurance conference to end all insurance conferences in Denver, Colorado. If you've ever wanted to hang out with us, if you'd like to drink whiskey with me, if you'd like to talk about technology with Bradley Flowers and how smart contracts are going to change the insurance industry in 10 to 15 years, come to Denver with us, please. Yeah. Bradley, add to that. We've got some guys. This is it's going to be a small conference. It's not going to be it's not going to be huge. It's going to be an intimate setting. There's only 100 people. No vendors, no carriers, just agents. Put it like this. The tickets are $199. I am doing, and Scott, as well as Andy and Ryan, we are doing every single thing in our power to make sure people walk away from this thing. That's the best dang $199 I've ever spent in my entire life. And we've got some cool things going. Mile High Stadium, Denver, Colorado, onecityworldtour.com, spelled out. 
there's only a few tickets left. In fact, by the time this show airs, there may only be one or two spots available. There may only be one or two hotel rooms available. Um, all that info is on the website. We are doing, and I just confirmed this two hours ago, Scott. This is hot off the press. We are doing a insurance guys NFT, which is a higher price ticket that's going to launch, I believe, on Monday. So if you're listening to this, there may not be any available. We've got five or six of those, that price point $750 that comes with dinner with the speakers the first night. Each NFT has a prize with it. So like David Carruthers gave a year one-on-one coaching, insurance guys interview, et cetera, et cetera. Really cool prize with that. And you get lifetime access to the conference. So whoever owns that ticket, that digital asset, at the time of the conference, every year that we do this gets to come for free. Uh, it's going to be a great time. I just went on GoDaddy to see if insurance NFT is available. It is not. So I don't know what the link is, but I'll tell you, Johnny, you'll put it in the show. So anyway, it's going to be a good time. We got Mick Hunt, David Carruthers, Daniel Song, Johnny Gwynn. We have a Lloyd's cover holder coming who's going to talk about how you can become a Lloyd's cover holder. Tell me what other conference, Scott, you're going to hear that at. Right? I got one better. Be I got time. one better for you than that, which that's What's unbelievable. That? That's beyond unbelievable. We have two mortgage brokers coming to tell you how to build referral partners with mortgage brokers. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did everybody hear what I just said? We have actually two mortgage lenders coming in to talk to us about that. It, the list just goes on and on. I think now we're going to have everybody gets a tour of Mile High Stadium. You do? Something yes. like that. Ryan Guys, Hanley just asked me if he came, could he throw a pass on the field? I said, you can do whatever you want to do. <laughs> Guys, I have a very special guest with us today, and I am humbled and honored to have him on the show. And it is time for me to give him the introduction that he has always deserved. He is originally from Rochester, New York, and he currently resides in Columbus, Ohio. He is a graduate of both St. John's University and holds a master's degree from the Ohio State University. A 52-year industry veteran, he currently serves as president and founder of Demotech, Inc., a financial analysis firm that provides accurate and proven financial stability ratings as well as consulting services for the property and casualty insurance market and title underwriters. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my profound honor today to introduce to you first-time guest on the IGP, Mr. Joe Petrelli. How are you, Joe? I am well. Thank you for that introduction. It was just like mom wrote it. That's exactly what it was. Joe, we have a great deal to discuss today. Bradley Flowers, I want to thank you for bringing on a guest to this podcast today about a topic that we have never discussed in 200 and some odd episodes. You want me to tell you how this came about? Go ahead. So Ariel Rivera spoke to the PIA of Louisiana, which covers South Alabama. He and I had breakfast um, if you guys watch uh, Making the Donuts on YouTube, you can actually w- literally watch that breakfast. We, we videotaped it. Uh, he said, yeah, last night I was having, and he name dropped you, Joe. He said, last <laughs> night I was having dinner with the CEO of, of Demotech. And I said, really? I said, I want to meet that guy. I want to interview him. I, like we write to a lot of Demotech companies. I want to know that guy. And so that's how this happened, Scott. Joe, yeah. I need some help. Okay. I am just like, 
the 250,000 insurance agents that listen to this podcast. I do not know a ton about what you guys do, but I want you to tell our audience just briefly in kind of a nutshell what it is that you guys do for the industry. Sure. We invented the regional carrier ratings marketplace back in 1989. The smaller insurance companies were not rated. Uh, matter of fact, based we were contacted by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, we contacted them after AM Best told them it was impossible to rate the small companies. And we found out that Fannie and Freddie had been doing desk reviews of these smaller insurance companies and deciding whether or not they were acceptable insurance companies. And then they would turn around and sell off the mortgages that were protected by those companies. So they decided that they had a little bit of what appeared to be maybe a conflict. And so they wanted a third party to rate those so that they could uh, have clean hands. AMBest told them it was impossible. We got drift to that and we approached them with a process for doing it. And the process we used was based on the business model of the company and their use of reinsurance. And over time, that's expanded. We're now up to over 450 companies operating in every state in the U.S., every line of business. We even got a few life and health companies we're, we're looking at. And we're accepted by most every agency and O-carrier, pretty much the premium finance companies. So we're, we're, we're basically a rating service that's helping regional insurance companies be rated. And we were the first to do it. And I'll, I'll stop right there because I want to talk a little bit about how those regional companies can help help independent agents grow. And we can talk about that when it's, when it's time. Absolutely. So help me out with this. I know that there has to be a lot of things that go into rating a regional carrier. If you could just name like the top three things that you look at for the help of an organization to allow you guys to rate them, what would those things be? I, I don't want to get too in the weeds with this because yeah. I know we could get way, we could get, we could have a master's degree class at Ohio State University on this. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the Ohio State University uh, this year is the Rose Bowl next year. Wait till next year. But anyway, I think the three things that we look at number one, we look at how they use reinsurance because they're small. So they have to get a partner that understands their business and they can lay off some of that risk. The second thing we look at is their business model. If they're really gonna be good at something, they have to have an infrastructure where marketing, underwriting, and claims all talk to each other, and everybody knows what their specialty is. And then the third thing we look at is what are they doing to stay relevant in the marketplace because the needs of different niches change over time. And so I would say those are the top three things, the use of reinsurance, the infrastructure and the business model and staying current on their niche. On the reinsurance piece, how do you guys view, is it the more reinsured a company is, the better the rating or is it quite the opposite? Because I could see pluses and minuses to yeah. both. Bradley, that's a great question because what we found is for the companies that the other rating agencies tend to look at, the other rating agencies, I think, take the view that if your book of business is profitable and your book of business is good, then you want to keep as much of it as you can because it's good business. Why are you seeding off what you're seeding off? And I understand that's a, that's a good philosophy for a, for a larger company, but for the smaller companies, we take the position, their reinsurance program 
reflects the fact that they're smaller than average, or maybe they are average or smaller. And so we look at it from the perspective is that company is taking a longer, the smaller company seeding off more is taking a longer term perspective. It's not about this quarter's profits compared to last quarter's profits. It's about me staying in the game and helping my constituency, whether that constituency is the producer who's a specialist in that area or the consumer or the business that needs the specialty. So the smaller companies do seed off more reinsurance. It's often profitable reinsurance, but they do it so they can stay in place longer and long-term. The other thing you'll see is the smaller companies tend not to be publicly traded. So they're not worried about investors and how much the investors have to make. They're worried about paying their claims and they're worried about taking care of their stakeholders. Does that make some sense to you? Yeah. The publicly traded thing is a big one for me because you know we have about 45 carriers in our agency, give or take, depending on if you count MGAs as one carrier or, or multiple. And you can notice a significant difference between the ones that are that are publicly traded and the ones that aren't? It, it's a fascinating difference. It's, a matter of fact, we had a study done. We've been doing insurance company ratings, as, as Scott mentioned, since 1989. And we were the first to do the smaller companies. And for the first probably 10 years, from about 1989 to probably 1996, 97, I could tell you with certainty, I mean certainty, what the initial rating of a company would be when one of the other companies rated them. I mean, absolutely, it was uncanny. And around 1996, 97, 98, we went from literally 100% accuracy to probably 85 or 90% accuracy. And we didn't change anything that we did. So we actually hired a gentleman, Dr. Mark Kaminsky, a PhD in statistics from the University of Chicago. And, and he actually went on to work for the US Census Bureau for 10 or 15 years. But Dr. Kaminsky did a study, and what he basically said was, if a company was small and a mutual company and did not have, it was not publicly traded, that we were indifferent as to that size issue, whereas the other rating agencies were focused on size. And he, he determined that statistically. So what you observe in your agency every day has been proven statistically by at least Dr. Kaminsky. Uh, many years ago. So, I mean, you're, you're dead on. They have a different view of the world. They need to make that underwriting profit or the profitability from investments. And every quarter has to be better than the last quarter. There's tremendous pressure because they're competing against other companies to attract that money. They're competing against trucking companies. They're competing against Apple. They're competing against Amazon. It's amazing what they have to do. Yeah. Well, what happens, I think, is it, it blinds you from focusing just on your customer. You know, if every one of these insurance companies would just focus on the customer experience and the customer relationship and fulfilling their promise to that customer, everything else would work itself out. But when you're worried about Wall Street and quarterly results or hell, even private equity investors, it's going to blind you from that. You know, I've said often, and I get a little bit of criticism for this, that if your singular goal as a company is to exit somewhere along the way, that's going to affect your customer experience. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. I'm just saying that's going to happen because it takes your eye off the ball. If I may, to your point, we've worked exclusively with smaller companies since 1988. We started doing our, our preliminary work on ratings. So we're looking at a long period of time. I can assure you 
that no small company president or CEO or underwriter ever woke up in the morning and said, let's start a pricing more because I want to get more business. The smaller companies have been the ones that have been this kind of steady eddy was the term they would use in my day, right? They were the ones that did, they knew the walk away price. They knew what it took to pay the claims, make a little bit of profit, take care of the producers, take care of the insureds. And that's the way they ran their company. It was about getting it done because in the smaller companies, they're going to find that, that, that producer or that claimant or that insured. They're going to see them at church. They're going to see them in the hardware store. I mean, it's their neighbors. Hey, Joe, I've got a question for you that Bradley Flowers is going to be on the edge of his seat to hear the answer for. <laughs> it may be the one that's in my head right now. So about a month ago, after the hurricanes hit the New Orleans, Louisiana area, the Department of Insurance for the state of Illinois, I mean, the state of Louisiana, sent out a couple of different bulletins. And, and this really hits home to me because I had a really good friend of mine, one of my best friends in the world that got beat out. I wouldn't say beat out. He, he'll have a very significant tax write-off because of this because he was a claims adjuster that worked claims for one of these carriers and is now not going to get paid. My question to you is this. There were a couple of bulletins that got that were sent out where there were a couple of carriers that were involved with those hurricanes down there that had to go and solve it. Should there be almost like a fire stop as it relates to carriers that are allowed to write coastal business based on your evaluation of those companies before they are allowed to start writing business down there to keep from this type of situation happening? You know, I, I'm not going to run away from that question. I'm going to answer it directly. First of all, I'll say this, Louisiana itself, if you go back, if you look at 53 weeks, a little bit more than a year, obviously they had six named hurricanes that hit Louisiana. Every single company Every single one that we rated in Louisiana survived those six storms. It was Ida that did a couple in. And part of the problem we run into is now that the, even the modeling companies, the catastrophe modeling companies, and I'm not trying to lay blame on them or anybody else. It happened. It's over. I don't, you know, it's sad. But the modeling companies now are looking at Ida and they're saying, it's a lot worse than we thought it would be. Correct. And- they're saying now it might even have been worse than Katrina. So I think when we look at companies, to answer your question, every company we work with has to have in place a vertical program, which is how much reinsurance they buy. And they have to buy to a one in a 130 year event, which is worse than Hurricane Andrew was. So they're going to buy to at least, at least a one in 130. The companies that we worked with in Louisiana bought to a one in 150, which is even more rare, right? Because the one in 1,000 is not going to happen. The one in 10 is going to happen every, every now and again. So a one in 150 is rare. And somehow, whatever happened with Ida, it was worse than a one in 150. So yeah, it was awful. But these companies were paying through the nose for reinsurance based on what the modelers thought would happen, based on our requirements. And for whatever, 
Ida just stumped everybody and was appreciably worse than anyone thought. And, and I think in retrospect, I think the modelers are looking at what they're doing. We're looking at what we're doing. And, and just to, I'll shut up in a second here, but the other thing is we talk to the modeling firms twice a year. We want to know what they're thinking, what they're doing, how they think things fit. And I'll tell you, without naming names, the last couple of conversations we had, they said, yeah, Ida was not what we expected. So with that being said, I was reading an industry publication on a Delta flight a couple of weeks ago, coming back from an industry event. And I read where I believe it's since 1982, the number of property claims in the United States due to natural disasters has increased 800%. My point in saying that, don't care what you believe relative to global warming or what's causing that or why that is, what whatever the reason is, do you feel like these modeling companies that all of these carriers are using to, to in some degree, base their rates on what they charge people. Are they good? Me and Bradley sitting around a whiteboard trying to figure this out and it's not good. Well, I, I won't comment on you and Bradley sitting around a whiteboard, but I, I will say this, the, the modeling companies are thoroughly vetted, particularly the ones that originate in Florida. Florida has a commission that does a very deep dive they have scientists and, and meteorologists on the other side of the table to go through it. I think when, when you look at the claims that have changed in terms of the last you know, 40 years, you start looking at you know, flood is much more prevalent. We've always had wind and tornadoes. The wildfires in California were disastrous. And you're going to Denver for your event. I'll, I'll tell you a story about Denver. So we, we had some clients in the area you fly into Denver and you drive on 70 to get to the airport or to get away from the airport and go to Denver. And there used to be fir trees all over Route 70 on both sides. And about 10 years ago, the borer beetles, it didn't freeze. That's what kills the borer beetles. It didn't freeze. They killed the trees. And so all those needles turned brown and you had six feet of needles on the ground instead of having fir trees. And it looked like a calamity waiting to happen. And sure enough, it caught fire a few years ago. So it's natural disasters. I don't want it's climate change. It's environmental with boar beetles. It's a very delicate situation. And it doesn't surprise me that the claims are up 800%. So by that rationale and the fact that you are in constant contact, or at least you're, you're talking to these modeling firms, what, what are they telling you relative to the, you know, next five to 10 years? reading the tea leaves, the atmosphere, what, what all's happened, what's going to happen. What are they telling you relative to what the future holds as best they can tell in the insurance space? One of the issues that they're seeing and that we're talking about is building codes themselves have been helpful in terms of stronger, more resilient structures. But the problem you have now is all the baby boomers and everybody else is retiring. They all want coastal property three feet from the ocean, <laughs> right? The problem you're running Tell into is, so the problem you run into is they've got the coastal properties and you can have better buildings, but the problem you run into is twofold. Number one, there's no zoning. So you could build that close and there's no zoning requirements. So people are doing it. And the insurance company becomes the bad guy because it's not the zoning 
boards that are going to make you stop. You have to have high rates. The second thing I heard, and this is anecdotal, is that you can build homes that are resilient. Matter of fact, I think if you go back to Hurricane Michael and the Panhandle several years ago, Florida, there was one home that basically the mailbox got hurt and the rest of the house was fine and everything else next to it looked like a bulldozer ran through there. That individual- That was a gold fortified home. Exactly. They paid for that and they had the money to do it and they went counter to everyone else around them. And so it is possible with the right construction to to sort of Mm -hmm. ward off some of these costs. But if you're not going to have the building codes and you're not going to have the enforcement, you're going to have problems. So that's what we're hearing is it's about the lack of zoning. It's about the location of the properties. And it's about how much more expensive the properties are now. Well, I'll tell you to that point, Joe, you know, so we have the Fortified program is administered by IBHS, uh, which is based out of South Carolina. I'm in Mobile County in Alabama. I think 98 or 99% of the Fortified homes in the country are in Mobile and Baldwin County where I am. Uh, We write a lot of Fortified. I had, I want to say two, 280 claims from Hurricane Sally and most of my buddies had about that or a little bit more. All of us say a slightly different version of the same thing. You know how many fortified homes I had claims on? One. One? One. And that person withdrew her claim because the damage was not bad. I know that's a very, 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 very small sample size, but two weeks ago, uh, openly came to my office and did a meeting with about 10 agents and every single one of us said something similar to that. So it's a testament to that program. Yep. Um, and here, what we run into here, Joe, is a lot of the builders are already building them fortified. Yep. It's like, it's just standard practice. And it's, it's, it's up to you, the individual to get it certified that we get your insurance discounts and that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the, the, uh, the Institute there, my wife and business partner, Sharon's a CPCU. And we were actually at an event where they had two houses next to each other, identical. And then they had the fans, the big industrial fans mounted to the floor And they said, all right, this house is regular construction. This house is fortified construction. And we're going to go from zero to 150 miles an hour in the wind and watch what happens. And one of them blows away and the other one's just standing there and, you know, shook a little, but it was standing. And so we're big believers in, you know, the fortified homes and the resiliency. I'm told, and again, this is anecdotal and it doesn't come from the modeling companies, but I'm told that real estate people are the ones that lobby against the stronger building codes because it makes a house more expensive and therefore makes a house harder to sell. Correct. Which kind of makes some sense. But the idea of a fortified house in an area that's, that has some, some uh, catastrophe exposure certainly, certainly makes sense. So let's yeah. switch gears. I can't speak to that, but what I can say is we have found that there's a lot of cases where a home may be fortified gold, which is the highest level. And it's actually not gold anymore. I think they call it fortified home. The realtor won't even put it in their listing. I'm like, good God, this is a selling point, you know? At least to insurance people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's going to save the customer anywhere from 300 to a thousand bucks on their policy. Like that's yeah. Joe, I want to switch gears for just a moment because I want to give these guys like a flavor of a lot of different topics to learn from today and, and be better at what they do. I'm hearing rumblings from industry executives that I'm friends with that most carriers in 2022 
are going to take rate and auto. And I guess, what are you hearing from your end as somebody who's doing a lot of consulting, you're doing a lot of work to rate these carriers. Are you kind of hearing some of the same things that I'm hearing or? We're 2021, towards the end of 21, 2022, we kind of stopped consulting okay. to, go, to go all in on ratings. But gotcha. we do, but in terms of auto, just to give you like a crazy statistic, now personal auto is 35% of the US PNC market. So it's a big deal. And when you throw in commercial auto, it's about 40%. So yeah, now that being said, I personally see the only way rates will ever go down, in my humble opinion, is through changes in frequency, because the cost of everything is going up. The hourly rate of the person that does it, the cost of their health benefits, the cost of the materials. So the question for automobile insurance is, is frequency really going to decline? And if it has declined, is it a level where it can sustain itself? So that being said, I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer that you have to take small, frequent increases. Mm. Will there be big ones? I think that from what I've been reading, and it's not just in insurance periodicals, it's in general like transportation magazines and things like that. Mileage, co- the COVID effect has kind of been is behind us. People are starting to drive again. They're starting to go out to eat a little bit more. The driving mileage is back, headed back up. As soon as that happens, you're going to have, I think, an increase in frequency. So will there be rate increases next year? I hope that they're manageable, but I, I would agree with the people you've been talking to. Let me ask you a question. And this may not be a question you can answer. Talking about these insurance carriers you know, prior to talking about the storm stuff and rating and modeling and things like that, and feel free to name more than one, who comes to mind that's doing a good job? Which carrier in your mind that maybe you guys are rating or maybe you're not rating, they're like, wow, they're doing a lot of things right in a lot of areas. Is there someone that pops in your head? Most of the big names pop in my head because the, you know they have the resources. For example, I know just from, you, and you can get this from the public information, we don't follow State Farm. We don't follow Nationwide. We used to, we rate some of all states' carriers. They're all, and progressive, certainly have to talk about progressive. They're all making investments in engineering and driverless vehicles and autonomous vehicles. Uh, They're hiring PhDs in electronics and in engineering and in IT. I mean, they're, they're not, they're investing huge dollars in that. And there's companies out there that I think are, are attracted to them. They're also using technology in the positive sense of the word to enhance the customer experience, whether it's a mobile app for a claim or whatever it might be. So I, I think you always have to look, you, you look at the, the people that are icons in the industry. And again, I can't leave out a Geico or a Farmers. They're up there too. But I, I think the big companies do that. The thing that I think is interesting though, is when you look at the smaller companies, that we tend to work with, they offer that same level of service. There might be more touches by a human being, but I don't necessarily think that's bad. And I'll tell you one quick story. We had a, uh, we had a client that is very small. They operate in seven counties uh, in Ohio. And we were in there a few years ago. We were talking to them and they were talking about automated systems and getting things out the door the same day it comes in. And they said, we've been getting things out the door the same way it comes in 
for over a hundred years. Come over here and let me show you how. And they walked me over to the corner and they showed me a typewriter. <laughs> they, did, they, they weren't using it anymore, but they said, here's where we got things out the door the same day we got it in. And now we do it over here. And then they walked me over to their, to their processing system that was automated. But, but I think to answer your question, definitely the big companies are making huge commitments, but the advantage of the smaller companies is they can let the big companies spend money, figure out, is it going to be A, B, or C that works best? They spend tens of millions of dollars and say, eh, B works better than A or C. And then the small companies come in and they glide behind them and say, hey, you know what? I want a little bit of B too. I'm going to throw an analogy to that. So my father is an electrician. He's an electrical contractor. And he has a client that owns a bunch of Popeye's chickens. And he was having a conversation with the guy who chooses where the Popeye's chicken is going to be located. And he was telling my dad, have I told you the story, Scott? No. He was telling my dad that McDonald's spends millions and millions, maybe even billions of dollars looking at traffic flow, looking at real estate and trying to find the perfect location for their restaurants. And he said, what we do is we just wait till they build one and we build one right beside them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a great analogy. Yeah, that's a true, that's yeah, a real story. Is. Like the it guy is. at Popeye's told my dad that yeah. it's essentially the same thing. It and is. What it is, what it is, Joe, is it's the speedboat versus the Titanic approach. You know, if, if there's something that needs to be done carrier wise, you know, it takes State Farm a whole lot longer to make that decision than it does FedNAT, which may be a bad example. But yeah, you know, I, I think I've had I've had companies that I want to sell technology and I hear a story where they'll go into a large company. They'll have four, five, six meetings. You know, they'll get past the gatekeeper. They'll get in. They'll be talking to meeting and they'll be sitting down at the table with contracts in hand, ready to sign an agreement that they've spent 18 months. And then they'll find out that somebody will walk in the door and say, you're not from the big company. And they'll say, you're not the ones who are supposed to sign that contract. That should be something that I work on. And so the company literally goes back to the to square one because they were talking to the wrong people who evidently didn't have the authority. So there, there are some dis distinct advantages of, of the big companies. They clearly, they're successful, but there's also some times when, you know, the smaller companies, when the decision makers, you know, one step above, you know, instead of being, you know, 50 levels above. Hey, Joe, I want you to do something that nobody's ever done on this podcast. <laughs> ever. We want you to You're sing. The it's the first time somebody's done this on this podcast. <laughs> thing number one when i ask you about how you know what your top three things are when you're evaluating the health of a small regional carrier i found it very interesting that your first thing was how they use reinsurance you know there's probably a lot of agents out there that may not really understand reinsurance but explain to them what the difference is between how one of the blue bloods that we've mentioned earlier, the state farms, the nationwides, the farmers, the travelers, how they utilize reinsurance versus a regional carrier, or if there is a difference. R rough cuts. And that's a great question. There's, there's two basic types of reinsurance. You know, one is you got your sort of typical large claims, like it's a, you know, a nuclear verdict or, 
uh, casualty line, and then you've got your catastrophe reinsurance, which is, you know, the wind blows or, or the banks get flooded. And so for a larger company, a larger company, and now we're talking pretty much, you know, the nationals or the companies they compete with, they are going to use reinsurance to stabilize their earnings. They're going to have very high limits uh, that they keep themselves on, you know, so they might issue a one, two, $3 million policy and they'll keep 10, 15, 25 million. They, they don't, they're so big, it doesn't matter. And they got the data. A smaller company, they're going to use their reinsurance to protect them against events that mess up their earnings. Right. A smaller company is going to use reinsurance to protect itself and make sure it's still around. So it's going to buy much more reinsurance relative to the big guys. For example, a small company that we work with might spend 60% of the premium on reinsurance, laying off risk. A large company might spend 10 or 15% of its premium on reinsurance. And reinsurance is the same for a company as it is a policyholder premium. You pay your homeowner's premium, you don't have a claim, you still pay your premium. Reinsurance, you buy it, the wind doesn't blow, you're out the money. It's not like they roll it over till next year. So, all right, I want to ask you this question, man. I'm, I'm glad you just said that. That's a beautiful segue. And please, please excuse my ignorance about this, but let's say a small regional carrier buys up to 60% of its premium is used to buy reinsurance. That reinsurance, is it just, uh, is it a total dollar amount that backs them up? you know, you know, backstops them or are there specific policies that are part of that 60% almost like, uh, those particular policies are lumped into that, whatever makes up that 60% dollar figure. So I have an underwriting guide. Let's start. It starts like this. I have an underwriting guide that yep. says, this is what I write as a company. This is the typical uh, policy I have. This is my high. This is my low in terms of property values. And my properties are scattered all over the state of Arkansas. And I want to buy some reinsurance. This is how much premium I've collected. They will model that. The reinsurers will model that. They'll look at it and they'll say, all right, we want 60% of your premium. But that 60% of premium is, let's say that turns out to be $25 million. That $25 million does not buy you $25 million of protection. It probably buys you $300 million, $400 million of protection. Okay. So what you basically have with reinsurance on a cat loss is you basically have like a prepaid credit card for X dollars, but it's only good at, at one store. And that's right. the store where the wind blows or the flood comes or the, right. or the wildfires. Got you. Does that answer your question? That, that That's probably the best explanation I've ever heard. Well, thank you for that. Say, I always wondered whether they did it the way you just described, like a credit card, like you're going to give us 60% of your premium. And for that, we're going to give you, and I'm just throwing out numbers here, you know, 400, $400 million dollars worth of coverage. I didn't know if they did it that way or if they, it was almost like they took a bundle of policies that equaled the dollar amount they purchased and said, okay, guys, here's your policies. If we have a loss, you're on the hook for all this, all this. You see what I'm saying? I didn't know which way they did it. Yeah. The other thing that happens is on the catastrophe side, you'll also have reinsurance in place 
separate from the catastrophe part that says, you know, as long as I stay within my underwriting guidelines, my maximum loss as a company is going to be $25,000 per claim. And I'll get reimbursed by the reinsurers for the rest of it. So when they're, you have to have those, use those policies in combination with one another, and one will inure to the benefit of the other. So when, the, if I have two separate reinsurers, the first reinsurer is going to reimburse me. If I have a million dollar loss, they're going to reimburse me for the 975,000 excess of the 25. And then the 25 counts towards my catastrophe. Or if they're all the same reinsurer, then the same process happens where the reinsurers already knows they're going to take a hit on that one. The, the other thing you can get into too is you could get an aggregate where no matter how bad the weather is, I can never pay more than X dollars in a, in a, in, in a year. That's rarer because you don't normally need that. But there are some companies, and now we're getting back to the smaller companies. There are some companies in some states where they offer unlimited wind. And so when they get reinsured, their reinsurer has to offer them unlimited wind. And it's a fascinating group of companies. They're specialty reinsurers that look at it. But it's just, it's amazing when you get under the hood. The smart, I'll tell you this, I'm an actuary, but the smart actuaries work for the reinsurers. That's where the money and the brains are. I don't mean to offend. I don't mean to offend any of the primary companies that are listening. But but man, the reinsurance stuff is complicated. What we're running into down here now in coastal Alabama is several of my carriers have sent us emails that we're those listening. This is the we got three weeks till the to the end of the year, two and a half weeks till the end of the year, with a few carriers that have emailed us and said, "Hey, don't write anything more the rest of the year. We met our aggregate. Talk a little bit about that and what that means." Yeah, I, I think on, on the aggregate, there's a couple of things is that it could be that they have an aggregate on their loss portfolio, on their losses that are, are seated, but there also could be that they're limited as to how many dollars they can write in their That's the one. primary program. And I think the dilemma, the, the, what happened there, and, and this goes back to what, what Scott was saying about the, the price increases on the property side those price increases started coming through earlier in the year. So all of a sudden that premium that was going to be $1,000 was 1250 and you hit your aggregate dollars that much quicker in, in, the, in the calendar year on a year-to-date basis because you've been charging more because of the cost of, uh, of the, and the reinsurance impacts the cost of the primary policy as well because there's certain factors where, you know, if you got a frame house and a, and a protection class 10, you know, that's not good news. You got a masonry house and a protection class 10, that's a little better news. The reinsurance pricing is very similar. It looks at the age of the home, the, the, the condition of the home, the age of the roof, uh, how close you are to the water, all those things. And, and so the, the primary policies can, the price can change just because the cost of me buying reinsurance is more on my house than it is on your house. Mm. I was wondering <laughs> if they somehow the primary baked the cost, some of the cost of reinsurance into the policy in terms of, of, of their overall rate. And, and this is a, a process that the reinsurance brokers help out a lot with the smaller companies is you can actually put one policy. You just get your Accord app, you process the data, 
You know it's going to cost $900 is going to be your quote to the insured. That very same policy where it goes to the left to get quoted to the insured, it goes to the right in the processing system and the processing system can tell them whether or not that particular $900 policy, what the incremental cost of reinsurance is going to be. And so you could have two policies that are both $900, but because of the characteristics of the particular structure, one policy is going to cost you $500 of reinsurance. The other one's going to cost you $100 of reinsurance, depending on the characteristics. So the processing systems are telling them not only how much it's going to cost, but how much it's going to add to their reinsurance costs. And, and that kind of goes back, Bradley, to the question you asked. That could also be the reason the coastal properties are big expenditures on the reinsurance side, and that could be a contributing factor to hitting that aggregate quicker. Yep, that's exactly right. And I'll say this too, in the Southeast, over the last five or 10 years, every storm that missed Florida hit somebody, right? It went to Louisiana or Texas, it went to North or South Carolina, it went to Georgia. I mean, what you don't wanna be if you're the insurance commissioner or the governor of a state is to get insurance to the point where it's messing up who gets to move to your state when they want to move there. I I mean, can't close without insurance and nobody's available to ride it. it, You know, I mean, what are you going to do? Florida is really close to that. Florida is a, it's an unusual situation. And I've said for, 15 years. We've been involved in Florida since 1996 when we were invited by the state to come down because nobody else would rate the takeout companies. And I've said for the last 15 years, Florida's not a peninsula. It's an island. There, everything down there is different and strange. And you can have a company in 49 states. You try to do the same things in Florida, you're going to get your head handed to you financially. Is that because of natural disasters or just all of it, kind of like a bowl of chili? I'll be honest with you. I think as we sit right now, as much as they're trying to change it at the, the gubernatorial level and the administrative level, I think that Florida, we had a, a seminar earlier this week, and one of the gentlemen said, Florida does not have a property insurance marketplace. It has a litigation marketplace. Mm. It is the lawsuit capital of the country on property insurance. Joe, pretty smart guy. How do you think? <laughs> well, first thing you got to do is, and I'll answer your question, but I'll give you a, a can little we bit. Get of the go- can we get the governor on the, of the state of Florida on the, <laughs> the damn podcast right now, Bradley? Call his office. I think he might be running for president soon. So that's probably well, going to happen. Yeah, yeah, he might be busy. He needs to fix this first. Go ahead, Joe. I'm sorry. I think right now what they're trying to do in Florida is they're trying to keep citizens from being populated. My theory is the way you keep citizens from being populated is you let your your primary marketplace be healthier. So I think that we have to get to the point in Florida where they're going to tell the 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 plaintiffs' attorneys. They're going to tell the the roofers, they're going to tell everybody that's being unscrupulous and they not, all of them aren't, don't get me wrong. Insurance companies are not perfect, but the statistics available from the National Association of Insurance Commissioners say 8% of property insurance claims are in Florida, but 76% of property insurance litigation is in Florida. It's almost 10 times. It can't be normal. It's manufactured. 
And so they got to fix the litigation environment and they got to fix it fast because the problem you run into is the Florida companies pay over 60% of their premium, the ones we work with, to the reinsurers. And if the reinsurers aren't comfortable with the marketplace, they might need 50, but if they're scared, they want 60. And then if 60 doesn't become enough, they need 70. And so the companies are getting starved. Right. All your profits just walking right out the door to go to pay for reinsurance. Yeah. I was telling somebody earlier today, you know, if you go, I'm in the, uh, I'm in the agency acquisition market right now. I'm looking to buy somebody. And, uh, if you go to agencyequity.com, which is a, a, a plethora of, of things they offer, but one of the things they offer is you can look at agencies that are for sale and it's like 80% of them are Florida agencies. Like this, just like throw a dart and they're all for sale. And, you know, obviously those agents want out of the difficult market, but the flip side is me as a buyer, I don't want to pay a million dollars for something. And then two years from now, the market just disappears and I have to remarket everything. And I bought something that's not worth what I paid for it. You know, I'll tell you, Bradley, you're dead on. I have a gentleman who's become a very good friend of mine. He's been an agent in Florida for 35 years. So he was there when Andrew hit. He's telling me the last two years in Florida have been worse than anything he saw after the dislocations with Andrew. It's worse now. And I get it. They always talk about, you talk about kind of balanced legislation, you know, and they talk in the insurance business about how the pendulum swings. Well, I'll tell you what, you got to get that pendulum back to the middle. And sometimes you got to make some people unhappy and the people need to be unhappy are unscrupulous plaintiff's attorneys and unscrupulous roofers. The good ones, no worries. And it doesn't take much to move that dial. It only takes a very incrementally small number to, to move the dial. And unfortunately, it's been moved in the wrong direction. Mm. The, if, if they would just do away with assignment of benefits, it would solve a lot of their problems. Very much so. They, they have something and new for those now. For listening that don't know what assignment of benefits is, I'm a roofer. I knock on your door when your, your shingles are missing and get you to sign a document that essentially gives me complete control of your insurance policy to act as I'm you, essentially. And we have it in Alabama. It doesn't run as rampant as it does in Florida. And we tell our customers that, number one, we don't refer to any contractors that do assignment of benefits. Two, the, the pitch to the client from the contractor is that, hey, this, you know, this is going to basically ensure that your claim gets handled fast. But actually what's happening is you are ensuring that the only thing you are insuring with an E, the only thing you are insuring by signing that assignment of benefits is that the contractor makes the maximum amount of money he could possibly make. That's the only thing you're doing. You're not helping yourself. You're not helping the insurance company and you're not helping your future rates on your homeowner's policy either. They have a new, there's a form and I've seen it's a one page item to your point. It, it basically says, on the form, when, and when they use it in Florida, it says, we know this looks like an assignment of benefits, but it's not an assignment of benefits signed here anyway. And so what, what they yeah. have now is a, a substitute process where that they're trying to get some traction with. But you're right. You got to get rid of it. You know, if you think about it, though, in the health insurance industry, we do assignment of benefits so that our health insurance company pays the doc but the, and, or the hospital. And so it sounds innocuous and it sounds like it's normal, but it's not because the difference is the medical insurance profession already has costs 
associated fixed that are associated with the diagnostic code is going to be submitted. The problem you have here is on when they try and do it on the PNC side, like to your point, it's the wild west because you might need three dryers to, to get the, the rug blown dry after the water. I put in 30 and I want to be paid for 30. You know, it's well, not, it's not the that, same. With health insurance, a lot of times or almost every time the service is already performed by the time the bill comes. Fair so enough. you are yes. already made whole. The roofer's not fixing your roof and then sending the bill. It would be a completely different conversation if that was the case. Yep. Right? Because what happens now is you're sitting there with a hole in your roof and your contractor's jerking around doing whatever, you know, and it's kind of a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Because if I'm a client in Florida and I'm saying I'm not signing any assignment of benefits, good luck getting a roofer to fix your house, you know, so it's kind of one of those situations. So anyway, Bradley Flowers, governor, 2024, state of Florida. Let's make it happen. <laughs> Shock the world. As long as he doesn't, well, I guess he wouldn't have ran for president at that point. We could try it. We could try it. I would rather get Mimo Ivy on. You know, what I've always said is I have to run for governor so that everybody in the state of Alabama knows who I am when they need insurance. It's the only reason I'd run. <laughs> Be great. Hey, Joe, I want to say thank you so much for being on this podcast. The last time today. that happened, somebody became president. So true. <laughs> hey, Joe, thank you so much for being on here today. Uh, this was fun. Thank you so much for having me. I could sit here and talk to you for three hours because I can, as we talk through this podcast, I just think of more and more questions I would love to ask you about the rating, the write them down. Bring me back. I would love to anytime. Guys, you are listening to the Insurance Guys podcast. And as I leave every episode, rewards come from action, not discussion. Get your ass out from behind that desk today. Go out into the big, bad world, build relationships, write good business for the agencies that you represent, write good business for the companies that you represent, make money for your family, for your wife, for your husband, for your kids' college fund, and for your parents that are out there struggling today. Go write good business for them and make money for them. Thank you so much again, Joe, for being on this show today. Bradley Flowers, I love you. Thanks, man. Thanks, Joe. Thank y'all. Yes, sir. Guys, you are listening to the Insurance Guys podcast, and we love each and every one of you. Thank you for being a part of our family, and we'll see you back here real soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Insurance Guys podcast. If you need to know more about me or you need to get in touch with Scott, you can always reach me at theinsuranceguyonline.com or email me at scott at iprotectinsurance.com. And if you need to get in touch with Mr. Bradley Flowers, go to portalinsurance.com or email him at bradley at portalinsurance.com. Guys, we love you. We thank you so much for listening to our show and being a part of our family. And we look forward to seeing you again next week on the next episode of the Insurance Guys podcast. Take care.